0: Good morning everyone. Today we are continuing our study through the book of Exodus and it brings us to Exodus chapter 16. So that's where we are going to be camping out as transit church. It's also where the Israelites are going to be finding camping out. Um, and there's two themes that I hope we'd be able to really uh, sink our teeth into. One is this question of faith, which I think pops up in that story quite a bit. And the other one is um, a picture of grace. So that's the two things I hope that this morning we can really sink our teeth into and, and get a deeper understanding of both faith and grace. So would you just uh, join me in prayer? I would just really covet your prayers. <clears throat> Father God, we are um, we are here hungry for you. Um, sometimes we may not know it, but... Uh, you satisfy us because you know what we need. And so your word is the food that you have given to us um, that nourishes our soul to the deepest core of who we are. We pray that these words would just come alive to us and, uh, and give us the fullness, the understanding, the refreshing, the wisdom that we need. So I just ask right now that you would just... Um, uh, be gracious and merciful to me as I just open up your word to this congregation and um, and just listen to you speak to us in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. <clears throat> All right, so in chapter sixteen is where we are, and that is where we're going to pick up our story. If you uh, have been tracking with us, you know that we are looking at the people of Israel, the Israelites, from their journey from slavery to redemption, and we have been just looking at each and every part of that journey, as God calls Moses, to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. And that that is the journey that they're on, so let's take a look at where we are, or where they are in chapter 16, and go from there. It tells us here in 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 the first verse that they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So that gives us a little bit of a background or clue, right, of where we're at. They have just left a place called Elam, and they are somewhere between Elam and a, at a, a desert uh, of Sin, uh, called Sin, which is basically Sinai, a short for, for Sinai, the wilderness Sin. And so this is where they are at this moment. And so... What we have been looking at is their journey out of slavery, crossing the Red Sea, and that's the story that we looked at last time. And here we are at this point right now. They're about a month into their journey out of Egypt. So they're about a month out, which means that, you know, 25, 28 days ago, they had seen this amazing sight of the Red Sea River being parted. I mean, can you imagine just visually what that must be like, to walk on the floor of a river, of, an o- of a sea, actually, right? And dryness, and to see the walls of the water sort of hold up with nothing actually physically holding it. I can't even imagine what that must have looked like. I don't know what the ground was. Was there rocks there? Was it sandy? But here they are walking through this, and they are seeing this miracle happening. And as soon as they cross, and they know, and they see a distance off, Pharaoh's army is chasing them, and so they are walking, and we have a rough estimate of how many people there are, but it's hard to put our finger on it, right? Some people say as much as two million people. Others say maybe a million people. Now, picture that, right? Picture a million to two million people walking. That takes a very, very long time. That is not an easy process. That's quite complicated, and as soon as they cross, it tells us that the sea's closed in, the waters closed in, and swallowed up the Egyptian army. And they and they watched this happen. Absolutely supernatural, unbelievable thing that happened before their eyes. So when they get to the other side, and we didn't look at this in chapter 15, but what it tells us is, what did they do? They celebrated, they sang, they wrote poetry. They brought out their tambourines, and they just gave thanks to the Lord for what had happened. Now... In that journey, with, Exodus doesn't give us every detail of what happens, you know, it's, if you look at the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll get more of that stuff. But where they are now is about a month into that journey. And there are practical things that you got to pay attention to when you are outside in a place like that, right? I mean, very real practical things are also just as important. It says that they were in Elam, right? They set out from Elam. Now in Numbers chapter 33, it tells us a little bit about what Elam was. Elam, it tells us, only, only a couple of lines, but it tells us that it had 70 palm trees and 12 springs of water. That sounds nice, right? I mean, that sounds like a place that you can manage and get by. And we don't know how long they were there, but over time they had to leave Elam, and they leave, and now they are here. So they were in a place where they had at least the basic needs. There were palm trees and springs of water, so at least those kinds of needs could be covered. But in the way God operates, you know, we don't always get to stay in our Elams, right? Sometimes we leave our Elams and we move on. And the way the Israelites knew when it was time to move on was what? In the morning a pillar of cloud was over them. And in the nighttime, a pillar of fire followed them. And whenever the cloud and the fire would stop, that's where the Israelites camped. And when the cloud and the fire would move, the Israelites would move. And so here they are moving forward in their journey. They don't know exactly how to understand this. And Where they're going they're simply following that and in some ways I think it makes sense if you're in a desert place Probably the one thing that you need in the daytime is cloud coverage right so that the heat doesn't just kill you and in the evening oftentimes what happens in the desert is that the temperature drops Dramatically and it gets very very cold right so maybe it was for practical reasons that that pillar of fire But it was also a sense that this was God's presence this was God moving them and they were obeying and, 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 and being led by a man named Moses. But when they come to this place here, it tells us a little bit more. It tells us so about a month in, and the whole congregation, in verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is how they're feeling right now. They're looking around at the reality of their circumstances and going, we have no provisions here. We have children, we have family, we have needs and there's no food. Is this what you're doing here? You brought us out here to kill us? Where there's nothing for us to sustain? It would have been better for us, if we had just stayed in Egypt and their memory of Egypt becomes a little skewed, right? Because they remember something like it was a Thanksgiving feast all day long, right? Meat pots and uh, good stuff all the time. And this is, this is now they're grumbling, they're complaining. What must it be like for two million people to need food? And for two million people, so the whole congregation came and they grumbled. And they struggled with this. They're doubting whether this was a good idea in the first place. They're not sure whether they should have ever ventured out. And they're not sure what the intent of Moses or this God is ultimately, because they don't know him necessarily that well. That relationship is still rather in the get-to-know-us, get-to-know-each-other kind of stage. So they don't know what the intention is going to be. We do, right? We, we, we're here in the future with the whole book in our hands, so we know what happens. Right? They don't know in that moment. Here's a thing that I can share from some personal experiences of work. Um, some of you may know that the, the work that I do is in a nonprofit uh, sector in the area of human trafficking and anti-slavery work. So, the work is actually going to places where people are experiencing and in slavery and doing rescue operations, bringing them out, and in that process, Social workers take that long, hard work of restoration and rehabilitation to make sure that they can now move into freedom. So part of it is, is my, my understanding of what may be happening here is impacted by what I've seen personally. And what I've seen is this. Going on these kind of rescue type of situations in places where people are enslaved, sometimes for years, sometimes for generations, and um, the largest operation that I have personally been on is one where there were 512 people that were enslaved and making bricks. You know, very similar to what the Israelites were doing, they were enslaved and making bricks. And so we had the process of going in and asking them questions and trying to have a dialogue with them, and then use and the government officials as well, and trying to bring them out. If you have lived your life in slavery, what does that mean? you don't really have control of anything, do you? Somebody else tells you when to eat, when to sleep, when to work, when not to work. Now, in that circumstance, when you're living there, you form some sort of a community. You'll get married. You'll have children. But you're not really a family in the sense that we have of what a family is. Because at any point, your slave master could just take your wife or your daughter and abuse them physically because they have the power. At any point, they could just tell the children, don't do that, I don't care how old you are, you're going to start helping your family. Imagine the powerlessness that exists there if you're a husband and you have no way to protect your wife and you have to live in that circumstance. Or if you're a father or a mother and you don't actually hold your baby or rock them to sleep, but you just put them somewhere while they just sit under a tree or a shade while you are working all day long. Imagine having no capacity to make decisions, think, plan, dream. What happens to your mind? What happens to you? What I've seen that happens often is that a little part of you has to turn off. Actually, more than a little part of you. You have to shut down. In order to survive, you go into a survival mode, and what that means is you have to stop caring or feeling or thinking because it hurts too much. It's too painful, right? So you just exist because if you start thinking, you start feeling the sense of absolute hopelessness. And we find that husbands don't know how to be husbands, and wives don't know what it means to be wives, and people don't know what it means to have a family unit. And that's the world that the Israelites were lived in. They were controlled by the the ruling um, people of that country in Egypt. And this is their experience. They have no concept of what it means now to live in a world where they're outside of that circumstance. And whenever we've done rescue operations, we've brought people out, the hardest part is the journey mentally out of that circumstance because now all of a sudden you're in a world and you have to figure out how to live life. But if your life skills are no more than that of a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, how do you decide what to do? How do you solve conflict? How do you, where's the wisdom? Where's the training? Where's the life experience coming from? You don't have it. You live from moment to moment, need to need, because that's all you've ever done. And the need right before them is they're hungry. They have no food. They need to eat. At least back there, our slave masters fed us. We got nothing now. We don't know how to make it here. What would it be like to see two million people? And, they, and when they left, they must have left with whatever they have. When we left in that rescue operation with five hundred and twelve people, and there's been different sizes, but I'd say that was the largest one, we had to we had to take about 20 trucks, sort of like the large U-Haul trucks that were open in the back and pile them on and take them out. And they just gathered what they had because they had been there for decades. And sometimes it's clothes and a few pots and some of them had chicken somehow that they got and they just wanted to take everything that they had and they're just gathering that stuff. It's like, they don't know where they're going, what's going to happen, but but if I'm leaving here, this is all I possess, I got to take that with me. And I just picture that right now of of a couple of million people kind of huddling and holding what they have as life possessions and walking along and just trying to listen to this pillar of cloud and fire and make decisions based on this man Moses who's telling them God is taking you to a better situation, a better place. Okay, all right, I guess, I don't know. Our social workers in the work that I do struggle the hardest because that They constantly don't know how to how to handle the next situation in life. And they get called all the time, help us with this, help us with this. We don't know how to do this, we don't know how to do this, we don't know how to do this, we don't know how to do this. They're scared. But it is beautiful to see over time, over a few years, how much they are able to learn. And that takes a lot of intentional effort, intentional work. But this is where they are. They are in a place where they are seeing their circumstance and they're thinking, it was better before because I don't know how to handle this. This is too hard, too unfamiliar. And so what they're asked to put their faith in, Moses, and this God that Moses says, I am speaking on behalf of the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the same God, he's saying. But they're having a moment of crisis, of doubt. I think it's fair. I would be scared. Where is food coming from? My babies are crying. My children need something. I'm hungry. I'm tired. There's not even water here. What, what are we going to do? Fair. Maybe not fair. We could sometimes say, come on, don't you see what's happened? The Red Sea parted and you walked through it. God does miraculous things. But that's the way our mind is. And, and when it comes to those things, sometimes our faith is strong. And sometimes our faith is falling apart. I don't want any of us to think that that means that we have faulty faith. I want us to understand something different. That is the nature of faith. Faith goes up and faith goes down. That's the cycle that it is. The problem is most of the time we don't like admitting that, right? We don't like going to that place because we'd like to be people that have it together. Who wants to look weak or unstable? Who wants to open their mouth and say, I'm I'm, I'm having a day where I'm just struggling. I'm having a week where I'm struggling. I'm having months where I'm struggling. This season, I can't hold any grip of God. Who Who wants to show that kind of weakness? It's a lot easier just to fake it, right? It's a lot easier just to pretend. And so this is sort of the way I think sometimes faith operates. Either we deny it, right, or it's demonized, Or the world in some way celebrates it. Now, we deny it because we can't accept the reality of our faith being like that. But here's here's what scripture does. Scripture does not stay quiet. And God doesn't have a hard time, I think, dealing with the fact that we have questions. We go up and down. I mean, if you just have to read the book of Psalms and recognize that, right? The psalmist is like, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? What's going on? And then he's like, praise the Lord with everything that I have, right? He's having those moments. You're having those moments. That's normal. That's real. That happens. Up and down journey. And God knows that. You think God bought them out of Elam into this place, not recognizing that when you're in a place where there are springs of water and then you're in a desert, it's going to go up and down? Sure. It's a journey. Not just a physical journey, but a journey of getting to know this God. And so the the worst thing I think we can do is cover it up. Because if we cover up our questions, and cover up our our areas where we don't know, and we are afraid to give voice to it, what happens is that we start to have low expectations of God. I guess this is what life is. I guess this is what being a Christian is. I guess that's all there is. I guess that's how much God just shows up, probably no more than that. I guess I should just get used to just that, right? we start to sort of lose our hope or confidence that life can be anything more because we just have to pretend it's fine and we have to deny or hide the fact that these questions are bubbling inside of us. So I don't blame the Israelites the fact that they said, why did you do this? Did you bring us out here to die of hunger? It's okay. Now, as a Christian community, we should also be very careful not to demonize faith. Doubt, I mean, demonize doubt. That's often the reason people deny it, right? It was like, if we don't have it together, if we don't seem to be the people that just are able to have this, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, we feel like we're 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 not good enough. And so that's part of the reason that it's just like we, we just can't talk about that. I love what scripture says in one of the stories that Jesus has, I believe, help my unbelief, right? It's always those two things kind of there. It's a journey for us too. You know that story where John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the one or should we expect another? It's been a hard, long season of journeying in there. he's like, is this? and, you know, I've had conversations with my friends on talking about this, and you know how many times as a Christian community we sat there and looked at that text and we tried to spiritualize and say, You know what? Maybe the disciples doubted, but I doubt that John the Baptist doubted, and he probably sent his disciples for their sake to find out, so they will be strong. But John, no way. Because we can't imagine that being strong means having questions and moments of doubts and weaknesses. It doesn't have to be. It can be very normal that John was like... Are you sure? Because I'm not doing so well personally. I'm in prison right now and things are pretty hard and I'm hoping to see some clear sign that this is all true. God doesn't kick them and, 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 and beat down the question. He simply says an answer that gives them a picture, right? Of the gospel of who he is, the blind are seeing, the captives are being set free. Good news is being preached to the poor. Go and tell John that. And he says to his own disciples, there is no man that has lived that is greater than John. In that moment of questioning and struggling, it's okay for us to bring our doubts to God. Because it's way worse to fake it. The other thing too is, the Bible doesn't celebrate doubt the world does right the world celebrates doubt because it's like kind of cool to be a person who just asks a question after question after question and doesn't want to believe in anything you know i was i was looking at this quote from dallas willard and he said it this way he said we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt <laughs> it doesn't seem uh, like Dallas Willard's sort of character of saying that, but, but, but that's, that's what he said, right? And that is sort of the institution. My experience in college was that way, like, if you don't believe anything and you question everything, that's smart. But the moment you camp and start to believe something, oh, right? It's, it's this, this world sort of celebrates the person who just deconstructs everything to the point where there's nothing actually holding it anything together. Because that's a person who's asking and challenging. You're actually not searching. You're actually just celebrating the fact that to believe nothing is the most glorious place on which you can arrive. And that is why he says, that is absolutely idiotic, he says that. So, what does God do in the midst of these people at this point asking this question? Well, the the text goes on uh, to tell us what's happened. And in verse 4 on it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they walk in my law or not. Let me, let me pause there. I mean, listen to that line. The Lord said to Moses, I just, I just want us to process these things without having heard it too many times. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> yeah, he says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. Bread doesn't rain from heaven even 4,000 years ago or however, however long ago that was. That wasn't a commonality, but that's what the Lord says. Bread's coming from heaven. Don't worry, Moses. I got this. <laughs> and that's how he says it. Let's, let's fast forward to the, verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I mean, That's got to be amazing, right? And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. I've heard it too. Don't worry, Moses. You're not telling me something new. I know what's going on. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. He says, this is what's coming. This is what's coming. And the people are told this, and guess what happens? Sure enough, in verse 13, it tells us, in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. It was to the point where people were like, what is it? What is? I mean, what, what just happened right now? To, to feed the needs of one million, two million people, whatever that estimate number is, how much quail just came and where did it come from? Right? And not just that day, but on a regular basis, this is happening. That's pretty lavish, right? Not just that, it tells us that um, in the morning, dew lay on the camp. And so that is the, the bread that, that came, right? And, it, and, it, and it, this is also something that the Israelites didn't know what it was. But something came up on the camp, and, and God tells them what you're supposed to do. In verse 15 on it says, When the people of Israel saw it, they said to each other, What is it? In fact, you know what the word manna means? What is it? <laughs> In the King James Version, I like the way it says it. They actually say it with, It is manna. That means they're, they're saying, It is... What is it? <laughs> right? It is So, you know, you just name it that. What's it called? What is it? We don't know. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each has in his tent. Let me go on down to verse 19. And and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left parts of it till the morning, and its bread and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it as much as each could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted." Every day, this was their experience. But this is the first day, right? And they didn't know exactly what to think. Food is coming down. You collect, and you're just going to have to be smart to make sure tomorrow, what if it doesn't come down? Again, reasonable questions from one side of it, but not when God is trying to teach you, do you trust me? Right? He's saying, I'm doing this so that they will know that I am the Lord your God. What's that like? Okay, so the, so, the, so the book tries to help us understand what the quantity of it is. It, it's not super helpful. The last verse in the, in the chapter says an omer is a tenth part of an epoch, and it says that each person would gather um, an, an, an omer amount. So I did a little bit of calculation as best as I could, and here's what I came out with, okay? An omer, and it tells us if you have little uh, uh, footnotes on the bottom, an omer is what they had each person gather. An omer is about two liters. Okay, so each person had about two liters. The only way I understand what a two liters is is from a Pepsi bottle or a Coke bottle, right? That's usually two liters, right? So that's that's how much it was for each person. Now, um, two liters is about four pints. Okay, four pints times let's take the, the the max number that I said, two million people, right? That's eight million pints. I don't think my math is super correct here, I'm not sure, but I tried to do some conversion. That's about eight to nine million pounds. Okay? Pounds. Eight or nine million pounds is four and a half million tons every day. Let me try to give it to you in a different way. Imagine a train, you know, the, the train compartments, the train cars. Imagine one to 300 train cars and in each of those train cars has 15,000 pounds on each one of it, right? That's how much four and a half million tons us. Now that's on the high end, let's assume that it was not a million, two million people, it was only a million people. Okay, not 300 cars, 150 cars, train cars. <coughs> Every single day, that was what was coming down? Day after day after day, that's astounding, isn't it? I, I, I am blown away by what God was doing. And it's something that happened to them all throughout their journey. All throughout, right? They say, it tells us that they had it for 40 years, right? If you multiply that time, that's 14,600 days that it happened, that this was their reality right? Quail and and manna from heaven. This is what God gave them. Now he tells them that important thing. He says, listen, take as much as you need, but not more than that. And it tells us that the people struggled with that, except on the sixth day, because the seventh day is Sabbath. Now that's super interesting too, because the text tells us on the sixth day, right? It wasn't one omer that they were supposed to take. It was two omer. So double the amount fell and they gathered and they had that. And I do think what God is showing in this is a picture of grace. Every single day, my grace is there for you. My grace is new every morning. My mercies are new every morning, right? My grace is with you. My grace is with you. My grace is there. I'm gracious to you. I'm gracious to you. My my relationship with you is one of grace. My relationship with you is one of grace. My attitude towards you is gracious. My attitude towards you is gracious. Do we believe that? Did they believe that? How long does it take for us for that to sink in? I don't know. I don't know how much you and I believe that. Here's the thing. Here's the verse that I love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It tells us this: where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay. It tells us that where sin increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or, or the King James version. Sometimes those language is kind of nice. It says where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So what it's saying is that if sin goes this far, grace goes one step further. But if sin goes this far, grace goes one step further. Sin cannot uh, cannot outpace sin. I mean, uh, cannot outpace grace. There doesn't get to be a point where you say grace cannot cover it. That's what Paul is saying here. Where sin increases, grace super increases. My question, do we really believe that? For ourselves? Do the Israelites really believe that? It's hard. Let, let, me, let me share a story with you. Um, because this sort of hits to the fringes of what grace can be. This is actually a story from a book that uh, a Japanese author had written. His name is Shizaku Endo and the book is called Silence. Some of you may have uh, read the book, or maybe not, it was back in the 1960's. Some of you may have seen the movie. Martin Scorsese came out with a movie a couple of years ago on it. But it's actually talking about Christianity in Japan. And Shizaku Endo said um, that one day he was in the area of the city of Nagasaki, uh, Nagasaki, and he went to a museum, and when he was there, he saw something, and it was a portrait of Jesus. Uh, Endo is a Christian, uh, uh, Japanese Christian uh, person. He saw this portrait of Jesus, and he asked the museum curator, what is that? And the curator said, oh, that's a fumi. said, What's a fumi? Well, it's this wooden picture of Jesus that was, that was around hundreds of years ago. So he said, "Well, why does it look like that? Why does it look all scarred up and stained? What is that on it?" He says, "Oh, those are just, just, just footprint after footprint after footprint. that's on the fumi." And that led Endo to do some research, and then he wrote this book, "Silence." And silence is a story of how Christianity and it's a fictional story, but it's a story that around when Christianity comes to Japan, which was around 1550 through mainly Jesuit missionaries that would come in from places like Portugal and other places. Actually, it's this person, Francis Xavier, who was known to bring it in. And Christianity started to flourish in Japan. And in in, in a very short period of time, in about a 50-year time period, there were 300,000 Christians thriving in the nation of Japan. That's when people take notice. And sure enough, they did. The rulers. The rulers at that time were a group of people called the Shoguns. The Shoguns noticed that there was this foreign element that was creeping into our our world and they wanted to find a way to deal with it. And thus began the persecution to eliminate Christianity from the midst. But it wasn't easy for them to because it was something people believed internally, so they tried to figure out a way to be brutal and violent in a way that people would separate themselves from this Jesus character, from this this Christian belief. And so what they would do was that they would would kill them through a a torturous uh, mechanism called using the pit. They would take a person and they would tie their bodies, except for one hand would be tied, and they would, after they would tie them, they would put them upside down on a stake. They would be tied to a stake, except for one arm free, and then that stake would be put in upside down. And there would be a hole in the ground, and in the hole would be just all kinds of horrible things, from feces to whatever. And your head would be below ground inside the pit area, right? Not touching the bottom, but it's, but it's, but it's below there. And the other half of you is hanging above. And then they would cut you right here. And blood would slowly drain out and slowly drain out till you died. But you had a way out. If you waved your hand and said, I will renounce this belief. I will deny this. If you did, they would untie you and they would put a fumi on the ground, this picture of Jesus. And you're supposed to step on it and trample it as a sign that says you have renounced your belief, your faith, publicly. Because they wanted others to see that people were abandoning it so that it could undo Christianity. That was the way torture was happening. And the book tells us a story of a person named um, Father Ferreira who was a missionary who had been there for a long time, and a true stalwart, Christian leader there, who was really leading them. And the story sort of starts out with word coming back to the Jesuit priest, I think back in Portugal somewhere, um, that we've heard that Father Ferreira has denounced his faith publicly. And it shocked his students. They couldn't believe that this man of deep faith would in any way do something like that. And they struggled with that to the point where they said, we need to go see for ourselves. So a, a father named Rodrigo and two others go out. And they set out, and they sail, and they come to Japan. But it's very dangerous times but because they want to find out the truth of what's happened. And what they'd heard was that actually Father Ferrer didn't last a very long time fairly quickly into him being tied to a pit he had denounced his faith. And so Rodrigo comes in, somewhat covert, because it's dangerous, and he's trying to have translators help him understand and move through, and he doesn't know who he can trust and who he can't, and he's trying to make his way through. And the people are kind of excited that there's another priest, a father who's coming in to teach them. And unfortunately, one of the people that he trusted turns out to double-cross him and turned him in. And Father Rodrigo is captured. And when he's captured, he's put into a cell. And while he's in his cell, the, the 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 soldiers and those there are saying, denounce this Jesus, denounce this Jesus. Just go ahead, you know, just just, just say it publicly. Even if you don't mean it, just go ahead and just do it. But Father Rodriga is like determined, no, no matter what I will not do it, no matter what I will not do it. But from his cell outside, he hears every single night this screaming and this screaming that's haunting him, and he's praying to God for some guidance and some help. But he hears nothing from God. That's why the book is called Silence, because he's, heaven is silent. Is I think the indication, and what he hears are the screaming of the people. He finds out are these Japanese people who are being tortured over and over again to denounce their faith. And he's inside, and they're saying to him, look, if you will just step on the Fumi, we will actually stop doing it to all of them. It's up to you. It's up to you. And he says, no, I won't do it. No, I won't do it. And at some point, they even bring Father Ferreira in, and he finds that he's still alive there. And Father Ferreira says, just go ahead and do it, Rodrigue. Rodriguez, a student, right? And Rodriguez can't believe it. He says, no, 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 I will not do it. But as time passes, it becomes harder and harder to hear the screams and the cries of the people outside dying, literally dying, and he can't believe the fact that he had come there for the Japanese people, and now they are dying because he is standing unwilling. And he's praying, God, say something, help me, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me, but nothing, nothing. And he comes to a point finally when he, he doesn't have any more strength left to stand, uh, stay uh, resolute on this. And this is, uh, this is the lines from the book, uh, parts of it. Somebody says to him, it's only a formality. What do formalities matter? The interpreter urges him on excitedly. Only go through the exterior form of trampling. The priest, Rodriguez, raises his foot. So, Because they put the fumi down in front of him. In it, he feels dull, heavy pain. This is no mere formality. He will now trample on what he has considered the most beautiful thing in his life, on what he has believed most pure, on what is filled with the ideals and dreams of man, how his foot aches. And then the Christ in the bronze speaks to the priest. That's how Shazaki Endo writes it. Then he hears... The voice coming from the fumi itself. The Christ in the bronze speaks to the priest. And this is what he says. Trample. Trample. I more than anyone know of the pain in your foot. Trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born into this world. It was a share men's pain that I carried my cross. The priest placed his foot on the fumi. Dawn broke. And far in the distance, the cock crowed. Endo writes that book, it's quite controversial. It's hard. Is that right? Is that fair? Is that stretching it too much? I don't know. I'm not um, gonna leap into all of that. But what is it that makes me or you or any of us ask that question? Part of it is can you go that far? Can you? Can you? Is there a line? That's what I'm I'm wrestling with here with you. Is there? What is that line? Is there a line? Do we live with a sense of the line? Sin—it's got a limit. But what does this grace piece mean? And I'm really just trying to wrestle right where sin abounds, grace super abounds. Yeah, but this far—are you sure this far? And that's the line, I just I told you that story because it's sort of on the fringes there. I'm not trying to make a commentary on the story, but I just wanted us to wrestle with the fact that how we do struggle to believe that. Can you really deny that? But then somebody said it to me this way, he said, you know, every time you sin, you're actually denying Christ every single time because you're saying, let my will be done, my way, my notion of the world. Every time we sin, isn't that really what we're doing? Aren't we denying over and over and over again? Meaning, isn't this something that we are constantly guilty of? We are trampling all over the grace of God, and what does God do in the midst of that? It's a hard one, isn't it? You see, the whole concept of grace itself is hard. If grace doesn't seem outrageous to you, then you and I don't understand grace. It bothered people. What do you mean the worker who came and the last hour is going to get paid the same amount as the worker who came at the morning, Jesus? That's not fair. Grace undermines our concept of fairness. It's got to be fair. And Jesus said, what does it matter to you? I paid you when I told you I was going to pay you. What do you care what I pay this person? Hmm. But does it matter? I think it matters because I don't want that kind of order in this world, except when it comes to me, maybe. But even when it comes to me and you, we feel like we can't really, really go that far, can we? So grace is tough. It's a tough thing. And if it's not tough, if it's not something that makes us feel like, what does that mean? If it doesn't seem outrageous, if it doesn't seem extreme, then we're not really wrestling with it. If, if four and a half million tons of food raining down every single day for 40 years straight doesn't seem extreme steps, God goes, we're missing it. If parting the Red Sea doesn't seem extreme, then we're missing it. If Jesus sending his own son to die on the cross doesn't seem extreme, it is extreme. It is way out there. The way the book ends, obviously, is trying to point back to something, right? Where, and dawn broke. And in the distance, the cock crowed, right? You, you all might have thought what I thought, which was um, the story of um, Peter, right? It tells us, when we, when we look at the story of Peter, same thing that happened. And I want to sort of focus on one little verse as we bring this uh, to a close. It's in Luke 22, verse 61. Sorry, I don't have it up, but I'll, I'll just read this to you. Okay, let me, let, me, let me set the setting before that. Actually, let me read verse 60, and, uh, and then I'll read uh, 61. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. The third time he denied Christ. I don't know this man. I'm not with this man. I got no association. I have no idea what you're talking about. Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 61. I think I may have mentioned this to you once before. Verse 61 says this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's verse 61. And it says, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. But an interesting placing of the story. Peter denies Jesus three, for the third time, and it tells us in verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus is in that trial process somewhere far away, but it tells us their eyes met. Their eyes met. Here's my question to you. What do you think those eyes are saying? What do you think those eyes are saying? What do you think Peter thought those eyes were saying? The most important question you'll ask in your life (coughs) is what do you think those eyes of Jesus are saying? Here's what I think. He's saying, trample, trample. I more than anyone know the pain in your foot trample. It was to be trampled on by men that I was born in this world. It was to share men's pain that I carried my cross. Somehow, God has the capacity to bear the worst of us and not give up on us and stay faithful to us. And that's what the book in Exodus chapter 16 shows us. But for 40 years this was their experience. Manna rained down until they got to Canaan. And then it stopped. Grace is something that I struggle with personally to understand exactly what that looks like. I'm a practical person. I'm a person who measures this amount of investment versus how much I deserve. I do that to myself, and I think I certainly do that to other people. I don't know how to deal with a God who who stretches that concept. And I don't know exactly how far he stretches it here, but he certainly was able to handle a Peter who denied him and reinstore him and ask him, Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? You have a second chance. You have a third chance. You have a fourth chance. My arms are open and I am waiting for you. I am not coming here to condemn you. I am not trying to, trying to create some sort of a hard standard and you walk through it and if you survive and if you succeed, you get it. Even the line where it says, you know, I'm doing this to test you. He's not doing this from the standpoint that God is going to f- figure out what's happened. God already knows what you're going to do. God already knows over and over I'm going to fail. The testing is more for me to understand what score I'm going to get, so I was like, oh man, this is still where I'm at. (laughs) Life circumstances is really more for me to know the grade I really am, because I actually think I'm a B-plus student, you know, in something in life where I'm actually a D-minus student. But those tests actually reveal what? What's really going on inside. And then I get uncomfortable with that because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a D-plus student and a D-minus student. I can't stand myself. And then the voice of Satan tries to say, then run away, flee, depart, and weep bitterly because you don't deserve this, God. But Jesus comes like the hound of heaven, comes after you, after you, after you. He doesn't give up on the Israelites. He doesn't give up on you and I. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we uh, we look to the cross and we see a sacrifice so sold out, everything you have because you love us. Some ways we can't handle that kind of love. It's too generous. It's too kind. It's certainly undeserving but it is your gospel that you're asking us to believe. And so wherever we are on that journey, you are able to handle our faith up and faith downs. You're able to speak to us in our moments of doubt. We don't have to hide it from you. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to be pretending to be better or further ahead than we are. Come as we are is your invitation to us, so we come as we are to you, O oh Savior, O oh healer, O oh transformer of our lives. Transform us today by your grace so that we don't continue to be foolish or weak, but by your grace we are renewed and strengthened and trusting your goodness to us. Help us to lean into you just a little bit more this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.